Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Jill Cook. Uh, I'm from the Department of Prehistory in Europe here at the British Museum. And it's my great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Joe Flatman, who is the senior lecturer uh, at University College London. This is the first in a series of lectures uh, which will be every Thursday through the month of June, given by our colleagues from University College. And it's a very welcome series too. Any of you who will have come in through the north entrance will be aware of the horrendous road and building works going on there. And this is all part of a much longer term plan to transform this quarter of Bloomsbury into a sort of culture zone through which uh, visitors arriving at St Pancras will wander through uh, in a rather pleasanter environment than exists now uh, and be able to appreciate all the uh, cultural and intellectual uh, uh, opportunities that the universities, museums uh, and other institutions in this area have to offer. So this is really a nice way of looking forward as well as looking back. Dr Flatman's uh, lecture today is about the climate of fear human responses to climate change. And this is also a very nice way of kicking off a joint BM-UCL lecture programme because it was Hans Sloan who, uh, way back at the beginning of the 18th century, began to collect the remains of elephants and to study them and to study accounts of elephants discovered all across Europe. At that time, the explanation for these elephants were either that they were elephants who had missed a ticket for Noah's Ark, or that they had existed in Europe before Noah's flood. Sloan's collection of elephant remains, his uh, recognition and popularisation of the word mammoth, uh, started two centuries of investigation of what environments must have been like in the past, and also changed the concept of the depth of archaeological time. So, as I say, Joe's uh, choice today is a very apposite one for the British Museum, where the first uh, glimmerings that the climate had changed uh, came into being uh, and became a focus for all those at the Royal Society and within Sloane Circle uh, to study. So I will hand over to Joe now ask you first to please make sure you've turned off your mobile phones uh, and to say also that these lectures will be uh, posted on the website. You need to give it a week or so to get there. So if you want to have a look or if you miss one, you can pick them up on the websites after that. Thank you and welcome to Dr. Flatman.
Well, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. Uh, I should begin by saying thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you uh, to the, my generous host who introduced me, and thank you in particular to everyone here at the British Museum. Uh, the Institute of Archaeology, where I work, has been working here in London since 1937, and ever since our foundation, we've had a, a really good uh, history of working relationships with the British Museum. So this is one of a continuation uh, of a long-running relationship. And we celebrate our 75th anniversary next year. So it's particularly nice uh, to, to fit this lecture into that history of the relationship with the British Museum. So thank you to the British Museum. And thank you to all of you for giving up your lunch hours to come and listen uh, to me talking for about half an hour, 35 minutes. There'll be some questions, some room for questions at the end if you want to. Uh, as was mentioned, this is the first of a series here at uh, the British Museum across Thursdays in June. So come back to the others. I know I'll be coming back to the others to, to hear what is going on. I'm an archaeologist and I work generally on topics of climate change. And this is obviously an issue which is garnering a massive amount of press right now. Uh, I'm one of a community of scholars in University College of London who work on this field now. Uh, and so what I want to talk about are just a few different things. I want to start off by just talking a little bit about archaeological understanding of climate change and how archaeology is uh, influenced by climate change in various different ways. I'll then move on to the meat of my uh, talk. And I want to give you some archaeological analogies, some real physical analogies from materials here in the British Museum, which I think give us an insight into past responses to climate change. And it feeds off this tremendous book. Now, hopefully, you're all familiar with it. Uh, it's a history of the world and 100 objects. It comes in relation to the, uh, the radio series uh, and, and the website. There's this amazing book. You can also now buy the CDs, uh, so you can listen to the whole record. And I've picked 10 objects from this book, which I feel are particularly uh, relevant to me or, or, or made me think about climate change in humans. And then I'll just round up in the last few minutes just with a little bit about how archaeology maybe gives us some ideas of the way forward. So I start off with this slightly depressing looking image I stole off the web some years ago. I can't remember where I get it from now, which I find is, is very emblematic of issues of climate change. Let's start off very, very briefly indeed with a tiny bit of the science. I am not a climate scientist. I am at pains to emphasise that. I'm an archaeologist who speaks to the dedicated climate scientists and I uh, take away their data. So if anyone here wants me to give them detailed uh, discussion on climate change, I can refer you to some very distinguished colleagues, but I am not that person. But the data which uh, we most trust, which is most reliable, which is most up to date, is the IPCC fourth assessment report. We are looking forward to a new report fairly soon. And that says that warming of the climate system is unequivocal. Uh, it's less than 5% probability that this is a natural process. It's being driven by humans in some ways. And so these are the fairly standard numbers that we will all recognize in various different ways. World temperatures rising anywhere between one and a bit percent and up to six percent, and one percent would be perhaps just about manageable. Six percent would be really pretty catastrophic. Sea level rises of uh, around somewhere between 20 to 60 centimeters. More frequent heat waves, rainfall, droughts, cyclones. Now, obviously, all of this is uh, uh, data which is being modelled, and some variation is to be expected in that. We don't quite know. We will we, we refine our, our data and our models all of the time. 
time. Some people also say that the situation is uh, far more optimistic than that, and some people say that it is far more negative uh, than that. We will have to see. So there is the basis of the archaeological or the understanding of climate change. We have various different pictures which we're all familiar with in relation to this, often fed by the media. And one is this classic one of a poor old uh, polar bear uh, looking like it's about to drown on its ice flow. And another one is a more directly related to, uh, to archaeology and human, a sense of the human impact of coastal flooding, the rise of uh, impacts on coastal communities, particularly in places like uh, the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Moving you towards the archaeology, I might point to us getting data from various different sources, including, for instance, tree-ring data, to look at cycles of climate change in the past and the speeding up of climate change uh, over the last few hundred years, ever since the Industrial Revolution started uh, changing the nature of our world so dramatically. And we head here into the territory of archaeologists. You might even think of pictures like this. This is one of these famous images done fairly recently for an exhibition held at the Museum of London and then more recently displayed at the National Theatre here in London uh, about what climate change might do to our world. Uh, this, this picture they did of flooded London. Now, you perhaps see the London you are familiar with, uh, with famous and iconic buildings. I see in particular a gigantic archaeological site. London, central London in particular, is one enormous archaeological site, and almost everything there uh, has some historic value. Admittedly, some of the uh, modernist buildings may not be to everyone's taste. There are archaeological sites dating way back uh, to the prehistoric era along the flooded Thames there, being studied uh, by colleagues of mine uh, and organisations such as the Thames Discovery Programme. So this is a very, very rich archaeological site. This is what I am talking about then. How archaeology gives us an insight into the past of climate change and how climate change in the future may impact upon archaeology. So we have a number of different ways of looking at this. We have a very negative perspective, which is this. Archaeology is very often a canary of accelerating change. Archaeological sites are uniquely sensitive to environmental change. They are generally stabilised, but the minute the weather starts fluctuating more, they tend to erode more. Coastal archaeological sites in particular are an area of considerable threat and they will be one of the first ever real solid indicators of climate change in the UK. We are already witnessing this on places like the west coast of Scotland where there is an accelerated cycle of erosion which is directly influencing archaeological sites. So we have an irreplaceable resource already at risk in some way due to climate change and we are anticipating that accelerating and getting worse. The other side of this, and I called it positive, but I'm not sure it is positive, but the other side of it is the fact that climate change is one of these issues that we all tend to worry about, but it seems impossibly hard to get to grips with because it seems such a large-scale global-level problem that even governments, it seems, can't quite manage to organise it. And individuals in particular, it can seem so impossible that it tends to lead to a defeatist attitude. Well, archaeology gives insights into the big picture, but in particular, and through individual objects, as I'm going to show you, it gives an insight into individual peoples and a sense of how people in the past, individuals in the past, dealt with climate change. So it's about humanising it. 
It perhaps even gives us a model for future responses to change, to how we can adapt and we will lead different lives and we will have to make some difficult decisions, but they won't necessarily be appallingly ghastly lives. I am not someone uh, who uh, proselytizes a dark dystopian future. I am a terribly optimistic person because like most archaeologists, for all of the bad I see in humans, I see amazing good in humans. I see incredible collaborative, cooperative organization. I see us finding solutions. And there's uh, some work at the end I shall reference in relation to that of climatologists working in this more positive viewpoint. So hopefully, archaeology can provide us a way towards a better understanding of climate change in the past and also in the present. Uh, the fact that this also makes me terribly relevant and means with luck I won't be fired uh, and that the government will continue to support archaeology is merely uh, coincidental to my argument, he says slightly rudely. Now then, we had the history of the world in 100 objects, this wonderful book. And I went down and I've been listening to this show and, and as I listened to the show, it, it increasingly struck me that, that Neil McGregor and, and the other speakers had already been referring often to a lot of different climate change issues. So when I was invited to come and give this talk, I said, well, look, would you mind if I, if I riffed off these uh, particular different objects I particularly like? Uh, so this is what I want to do for sort of the remaining 20 minutes. I will have to be fairly speedy, and I apologize for that. If anyone wants to talk to me at length afterwards, I don't have to be in an examinations meeting till 3 o'clock, so I have a little time to talk to you. Starting off way back, as far back, uh, I think it's the first object of this entire book, uh, if I remember rightly, is a Clovis spear point. Well, Clovis spear points are about... I don't know, 15, 20 centimetres long, something like that. They are beautifully worked, and archaeologists get extremely excited about them. Uh, but most members of the general public probably find them a fairly dry thing indeed. As a first example of climate change, I put it to you that this object is an example of the amazing ad oops, sorry, adaptability of humans and resilience of humans and the technological know-how. And the image I want to give you in relation to that uh, is how those Clovis spear points uh, ended up uh, in the Americas. And they ended up in the Americas because of our colonization of the world, our colonization out of Africa, spreading out to the human population over an incredibly long time span. And in particular, going across what is sometimes, I think, rather unfairly called the Beringia, the Beringia Land Bridge, more fairly, I think, referred to as Beringia, because a land bridge implies a very narrow thing. This was an amazing big landscape, now uh, entirely flooded, or largely flooded, between Siberia and Alaska, and it gave a physical link between Asia and the Americas. People moved across there and then they gradually moved down, as I'll show you in this picture, they gradually moved down uh, into the Americas, eventually ending up right down South America. And this was one of the tremendous and amazing movements of humans. There are certain uh, aspects of the uh, populating of the world which archaeologists find particularly mind-blowing. And I have to say, the population movement people right down into America for me. Every time I see this kind of picture, I get incredibly excited because it's just, it's so dramatic and it took a long time, but the impact uh, is still with us. And the impact is in things like that Clovis Spear point. These people were living in a world quite unimaginable from the one we currently live in, uh, but they were making these small tools. They were dealing with 
literally a brave new world which unf uh, unfolded in front of them. Uh, community groups moving into that new population generation after generation after generation. And the wonderful thing is we can track it from things like that fine Clovis spear point of which there are many examples scattered uh, across the Americas and, and thankfully held in museums like this one to this day. But we can also track it through exciting things like uh, various different types of DNA. Uh, and this is an example uh, taken from an article about this in Science, the magazine, a few years back. So as a starting point, that sense of human's ability to adapt, and it's a point I would keep reinforcing to you, we're very good at adaptation. Don't be afraid of change. Humans are built for change. The reason there's so many of us is we're terribly, terribly good at dealing with change. It can just seem a bit frightening. So that's a good lesson to start with. I move on to, I think, what is probably my favourite object and may well be the favourite object of a, a lot of people here, partly because it's such a small, it's only about 10, 15 centimetres long, such a small and apparently um, unimportant little find. It's a tiny little piece of artwork. Uh, the book informs me, and I'm sure I uh, can absolutely trust it, that it's the oldest piece of art held in any museum or gallery anywhere in Europe. Uh, and it's, it's dramatic, and that's one of the joys of archaeology, is that these, these tiny little objects sometimes which people come across uh, can be so influential, but yet when first found, the archaeologist doesn't necessarily know that. This was found in a, in a rock shelter site in France, and when first discovered, I suspect the archaeologists were like, well, that's perfectly nice, and they carried on digging, and only later did they realise sort of the reverberations of their discovery around the world. Well, this is perhaps me ever so slightly stretching the truth, but I found this one very emotive when I saw it in the book and online, uh, about how I feel it is in some ways the art of climate change and the perception of the environment by people in the past. These are swimming reindeer. This is the kind of animal these, uh, the people who produce this are hunting and chasing after. The reindeer are far more adapted in many ways to that landscape at the time than humans were. Uh, there's a far larger number of the reindeer than humans. It's only later on that we come in uh, and we become the dominant species at this time. So this is a piece of artwork from people intensely in touch with their environment, intensely aware of it, but they're still finding time to produce art, uh, to have a perception of their environment, a life under pressure. And this again is something that I think I would reinforce to you. One of the lessons from archaeology is that we need to have that cultural sense uh, of, of change in our lives. That Yes, times can be difficult, but we must have a place always uh, for art and culture and a broader understanding of ourselves because that broader understanding is one of the key things which makes us human, which makes us so special as a species. Third one, moving on, I'm doing nicely on time. I tend to overrun on these lectures, I'm afraid to say, is a marvellous piece of a tablet from Nineveh in modern-day Iraq, a country so often on our minds for all of the tragedies which it has and continues to experience, but from an archaeological perspective, is an incredible centre of culture for so many thousands of years and such a centre of archaeological innovation development. Uh, it, it is one of the key countries, literally, for the development of archaeology as a discipline. Now, this is, is one of these famous tablets recording, effectively, uh, a, a flood narrative story the sort of flood narrative story which almost every culture, almost everywhere around the world, has in some format. Uh, and various different religions embrace it in various different manners. But it is a wonderful sense of universality coming from this. And again, much like the previous example, it's about 
humans identifying uh, stories they can tell about change as ways to deal with change. And this is partly what I'm doing. In a way, I give you continuity through these objects that I now give you a narrative of explaining and understanding, as do many people, about how we get used to change again and the storytelling of climate change. So we have that example, but I give you a slightly more recent example as I, I, I go slightly away from the British Museum. Uh, I want to point out another marvellous organisation here in London, and this is uh, the British Library, which is connected uh, historically with the British Museum, now with its tremendous uh, new building up by St. Pancras Station. And this is a, a, an illuminated manuscript of the Middle Ages from a book called The Egerton Genesis. Uh, I'm a, a medieval art historian uh, at heart. That was my background. And so this book, or th this, this picture, is one very close to my heart. And in many ways, it's exactly the same narrative story taken forward uh, about, well, about uh, 1,500 years in the Middle Ages of Noah and the Flood. And this is uh, Noah and the Ark. They've landed on Mount Ararat, and they're, they're repopulating the land. It's sad that this is a, a not terribly good scan. The real one is so full of color and vibrancy, and it makes you glad to be alive. And it makes you think, yes, for all of the fear of climate change in various different ways, and all of the uncertainty in so many ways, examples like this remind us of our humanity, remind us that uh, you know, we will hopefully, we will work hard to find a solution. The solution will hopefully not be lots of us crammed onto ships floating around this newly flooded world. I think there may be a slightly more complex technological fix than that, but this is basically climate change adaptation in action as a picture, admittedly a very colorful picture. And for those of you who are saying, oh, this is terribly unrealistic, it's not. The animals are incredibly realistic, like the unicorn is and things like that, but the boat, I'm a specialist in ancient boat technology, the boat is a spot-on uh, uh, description or, 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 or uh, representation of a medieval type of boat known as a cog. Uh, I have excavated boats which timbers look precisely that one. So these things can be terribly accurate in their own way. I do need to crack on now because I've over started overrun. We have then this site um, number four, a Maya Maze God statue from Honduras. Now here we have examples of a community who were profoundly influenced by climate change. Climate change hit the Maya particularly badly. They were very, very dependent upon maize and after a, a series of particularly bad environmental cycles their population was literally taken to the brink and beyond of collapse. It is an example uh, to us all of the need to be diverse, to be careful with what we rely upon resource wise. It also I like to think gives us a hint of the future and so I found this slightly silly picture on the web but maybe the future does lie in biofuels. It certainly lies upon weaning ourselves off resilience on certain resources of which hydrocarbons like oil and gas are one example. Uh, maybe we will spend a lot of time eating corn and we may also spend a lot of time using corn and other base fuels in this way. Moving on quite speedily, we have another example here from Rapa Nui, known uh, more familiarly, familiarly as Easter Island. I'm terribly sorry, I must stop doing that. Uh, we have these famous great big statues, one of which is held here in the British Museum. I've long wondered how on earth they managed to ship it back here and move it around the British Museum. I should ask one of the curators that. I suspect it's one of the most commonly asked questions. But there we had a very small island ecosystem, which was originally quite a heavily 
forested area and environmental change entirely driven by humans over really quite a short period of time led to deforestation. This led to dramatic uh, social change and interestingly it led in particular to cultic activities with the cult of the Birdman uh, as a, a, an attempt to reconcile this tremendous environmental change that had been brought about by humans uh, on themselves on Easter Island and it led to that, that extraordinary modern deforested landscape for those of you who have been lucky enough to go to Rapa Nui, I've, I've never gone there but one of my colleagues works out there uh, and has told me about it and it really is an extraordinary site. So another example of, of questions of uh, how humans are responsible for their environment uh, and how they, they cope with the ideas of change, either change externally impacted upon them or brought upon them by themselves. Moving back closer to home there, we come to one of the most famous finds of all in the British Museum. I suspect this is probably one of the top five uh, objects that everyone wants to visit in the British Museum. It may even be in the top three. The marvellous Lewis Chessman. Beautiful example. Now, a lot of people would say, what on earth has this got to do with climate change? Well, two things. One, it's about coastal resource exploitation and people are living in a very fragile coastal ecosystem where even at periods of stability, that coastal zone, the, the weather and the climate there is so dramatic. A friend of mine is working on St Kilda uh, up in that area, not too far from there right now, and is reporting some of the worst weather she's ever seen and keeps posting on Facebook, when is the weather going to improve? I thought it was meant to be summer, and she's posting pictures of tremendously heavy rainstorms and things like that. In particular, though, I want to highlight to you the fact that there are particular threats to coastal archaeology from climate change, as I said earlier, uh, and the west coast of Scotland is a particular place. There's a project, for those of you who are interested in this, called uh, SCAPE, uh, to do with the problems of coastal erosion and archaeology in Scotland, and they have demonstrated that there really is quite exponentially accelerating uh, uh, coastal change and coastal erosion going along there, and their, their, their conclusion is that almost without question, this is to do with human-driven climate change. It's one of the first impacts. So that isn't a distant impact in communities thousands of miles away. It's hitting coastal communities in the UK right now. Most people are terribly unfamiliar with it. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find any particularly good pictures of poor old eroding archaeological sites. They tend to erode in one storm cycle very quickly. So I give you instead this slightly stormy and slightly romantic picture from Scotland rather than anything else. Moving on, we're getting closer in time and we have a double-headed serpent. Well, this allows me to riff slightly on the theme of urbanism and climate change. And here we are in this amazing city of London uh, with its various different historical periods and now modern issues of adaptation to climate change. And on the one hand, we have things like the Thames flood barrier protecting us hopefully from storm floods. And on the other hand, we have new suggestions of need to adapt historic buildings uh, to put in things like wind turbines all over the place. Uh, we have a point at which we are about to embrace tremendous physical change in all of the big urban environments all around the world. And uh, it is something I think a lot of people are quite unaware of and unfamiliar with. But I'm one of the people here to say, don't be afraid of this, but be aware that in the next 20 to 30 years, your urban environment is going to have to change really more dramatically than probably at any period in the last 200 years. And this will be a good thing, but it will be a big thing. You are going to see massive, massive adaptations in buildings. 
linking into this issue, and as you can see, I am tending to riff on these objects slightly broadly at times. I think this is a very interesting example of past urban innovation and development, because obviously uh, this, this particular material doesn't actually come from Mexico City itself. Whoops, hang on, I should have a nicer picture there. Something's gone wrong. I thought I had another picture. I'm terribly sorry. But we do, at Mexico City, have a period, a whole series of cycles of change reflecting the archaeological pattern of the small and original urban centre, which was on an island in the middle of a very big lake site. The city slowly developed and built up, and then slowly, uh, through canalisation and various different other measures, they removed almost the whole of, of, of the lake which surrounded that original historic city. And then we had subsequent modern patterns up until the modern day of this enormous urban environment, which is modern-day Mexico City. There is this sense uh, from examples such as this of just how dramatic change has been. A couple of final examples. Australia is a, a country very close to my heart because it's somewhere I did some of my early field work and I used to work out there. And when I came across this object in the History of the World series, uh, I did find it particularly emotive. It's a, a bark shield. It's a bark shield particularly found at Botany Bay and it was brought back by Captain James Cook himself. It's one of these objects which has a direct connection to a, a very famous historical individual but then also provides us a connection to an incredible population. And when I look at this, one of my big questions is, what was the lifestyle of the indigenous person uh, who dropped or abandoned this when they saw the British? And just their true shock at being faced with these, th th these extraordinary alien-like species which arrived with totally different clothes and customs and skin and, and strange vessels. Now, Australia at the time of arrival uh, by Europeans uh, was... Uh, widely populated by an incredible diverse array of indigenous peoples and unfortunately a lot of people in the modern world are unaware of the amazing environmental resilience and adaptation of those indigenous peoples that were living in every different uh, physical environment of Australia from, from tremendous cold up in some of the mountains to uh, great heat in some of the deserts through very wet tropical areas to very dry uh, more seasonal areas. They were an incredible incredibly adaptive uh, community, living perhaps not in perfect balance with their environment, but certainly much more closely to their environment and understanding the subtleties of environmental management of a sort that we are starting to re-embrace nowadays. This is also a culture which appeals to me as an archaeologist because it is a very universal culture. What I mean by that is it sees history and it sees uh, our uh, uh, environment sort of blended together. I'm overrunning, so I need to chase on with this. But I give you a picture in particular, again, of just how complex was the arrival and movement of peoples, prehistoric peoples, or I'm sorry, indigenous peoples, into Australia uh, tens of thousands of years ago. We still don't really know archaeologically exactly when the first indigenous ancestors arrived in Australia. We are getting indications that it's at least 40 or 50,000 years ago. It may be twice as long as that ago. And one day, fairly soon I hope we will find uh, more solid datable evidence up there uh, up uh, in the kind of the far uh, northwest of Australia but I must move on because I'm running out of time
Very briefly, a couple of other examples from this book. The Great Wave, a, a, a picture from 1830s Japan. Well, this is a reminder uh, of, of kind of one-off events. And unfortunately, poor Japan with its tsunami earlier this year. I felt I could not put this in uh, to reference the, the stories of tremendous resilience, humanity, and compassion we saw in that one example of a tsunami, not a human-driven one, and how we will look for stories like this again in the future as more and more humans get impacted by climate change in various different ways. My final example, I'm sorry to have to sweep along, I always do this, is the solar-powered lamp, the last example, the hundredth example in this tremendous book. And what I like here is this sense of the small adaptation of humans and the way that little objects like this will be what the archaeologists of the future look at. I hope there will be archaeologists in the future looking at materials like this. I hope they will excavate these materials in various different ways. This is literally the archaeology of climate adaptation as we go along and it means little things like individuals having solar-powered lamps and hopefully like me you've also got things like solar-powered chargers for your mobile phones uh, things like that nowadays much more useful uh, and we will see more and more of this but it reminds me too that a lot of the archaeological record won't be things like that it reminds me that the fossil record will go back into things like nappies friends of mine work on modern-day garbage projects in archaeology and they report that one of the uh, the best surviving uh, materials anywhere is the gently decomposing uh, disposable nappy, which seems to have incredible longevity. So will it be these solar-powered lamps that survive, or will it be hundreds of millions of gently decaying nappies? We will get some very interesting archaeological data in the future. I really do need to round up now, and I give you that picture there of, of one of, I think, one of the great climate heroes uh, uh, in terms of developing this type of technology, the wind-up radio, uh, Trevor Bayliss there. The way forward then, in a, literally about two minutes, so there's some time left and you can all go off back to look around the museum and your jobs. The way forward is this, change is inevitable and there will be losses. We, even if we were to stop all uh, uh, climate change right now, there would be tremendous change ongoing, as much as anything, because even if there was no climate change at all, we're still running out of lots of other resources, like energy resources. We're going to have to change the world. We're going to have to find new energy resources, and we're going to have to deal with that climate change challenge. Tough decisions are going to have to be made, but we are very resilient, and the lesson that archaeology brings you, and brings all of us, is that humans are very resilient. It's very much well worth doing something. Do not listen to the doomsayers who say, we're doomed anyway, there's nothing we can do, the only thing we can do is have a party and then eventually society will collapse. If you want a good example of some of these books on this kind of field, read Tim Flannery's book Here on Earth, a wonderful book I'm going to give you a quote from in a second, which is a very positive view of how we've adapted in the past and will continue on in the future. Tim Flannery, for those who have not read him, go and read him. He writes beautiful lyrical English and really good science too. For particularly work on my field, anthropology and climate change is interesting, and that little book there, Linfield and Rathta, useless stuff, is an example of how we can all do things like have better technologies to help us do climate change adaptation. We have lots of things going on. We are very selfish, we're very devious, but we're ingenious and we're adaptable and we're generous and we do good things. I will end very briefly with a quote from Tim Flannery from that book. And he says, if we take too small a view of who, what we are and of our world, we will fail to reach our full potential. We need a holistic understanding of how things Things are here on Earth with its illumination of ecosystems, superorganisms, and Gaia itself. How we've been built through mutual independency, I'm riffing there slightly. I like this sense that we have a possibility here to change the world for the better. I end 
with uh, one thing. That is, if you want to talk to me about this, I'm always happy to talk about this. That's my email address, and you can even follow me on the dreaded Twitter if you're interested. And I would be remiss of me not to try to do a slight flag-waving for self-interest here. There's a tremendous new book coming out, which is coincidentally uh, co-edited by myself and a very good friend of mine, Marcy Rockman, who works as an archaeologist in the United States. Marcy, in particular, has uh, written a chapter in this book all about archaeology and climate change, and she far more fluidly and literally than I does, goes into the detail of this issue of archaeology and climate change in this book. The book is out uh, later this year, and I highly recommend it. Ideal for Christmas presents, birthday presents, and all sorts of purchasing. Uh, with that, thank you again for all listening to me. Thank you again to the British Museum, and thank you to the Lunch Hour Lecture Series for organising this. It's tremendous to see you all. Uh, there we go. Thank you. I owe the rag. Um, uh, that was terrific, and I'm particularly touched that two of your ten objects were <laughs> from my collection. Completely coincidental. <laughs> um, and that if you want to read more about the swimming reindeer, you can buy a book for just a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> Which is slightly less heavy. <laughs> from our shop in the Objects in Focus series. Um, uh, I, I'm find myself saying here, here, all the way through Joe's talk, here, here to our resilience. I think of the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago when human life on, in Europe was really on the brink. For two millennia, somehow we managed to hang on and come back with a renaissance that produced the swimming reindeer. Extraordinary. But also slightly naughtily that sometimes climate change can work to our advantage. My colleague Nick Ashton runs a big project up at Haysborough, which through the um, uh, cause of uh, uh, rising sea levels and coastal erosion, uh, the erosion has exposed uh, what is we now think is the oldest evidence of human activity in northwest Europe. So from, uh, it does have advantages for us, our archaeologists. <laughs> and that's <laughs> such a tremendous archaeological site, it really Ab is. I mean, it's, it's, it's revolutionising our understanding of the, the early occupation of, of Britain. It's quite incredible. Yes. So uh, I'll ask you now, having had a little time to think, if you have any uh, quick questions for Joe. Please, I think it's. Yeah, I just wondering if you could say some more about uh, how you think London's going to be changing in the future. Uh, London is going yeah. to be changing in the future. Um, in particular, we're going to be looking at major adaptation of our historic building stock. One of the big lessons is that it, purely in terms of energy efficiency, even if, if we don't deal with the climate change issue, we need to get our buildings a lot more energy efficient. Now, somewhere like London, which has got uh, hundreds of thousands of historic buildings, uh, not all in any way listed, I'm thinking the kinds of houses I live in, just a very standard uh, mid-19th century North London terrace. Places like that are going to have to see really quite big uh, adaptation, uh, not just terms in, uh, in terms of, say, producing energy through, say, solar or wind, but also just in terms of better insulation. Uh, friends of mine who are working at the Bartlett School and in the UCL Environment Institute are looking at this, and their figures are saying something in the region of 600,000 buildings a year for the next 40 years being retrofitted to be more energy efficient. So it's a dramatic, I mean, street after street after street of every major urban centre, particularly in places like Britain, I mean, 
mean, London, Birmingham, Manchester, Bristol, Cardiff, you know, anywhere where there is any substantial historic building stock, we're going to have to see major adaptation. It's going to be very interesting to see. I'm not quite sure uh, uh, if we're quite realising the level of that challenge quite yet. Does that answer your question? It, it, it's not an easy process, especially when you work, uh, as we do here, in a listed building. But you will see that we are publicly accountable. And as you go out of the main gate, you will see our energy rating posted by the gate and how we are expected to achieve better and better goals for this year on year. So public buildings are already committed to this. Uh, another, there's a lady at the back there. I would like to disagree with you about Tim Flannery, who is a South Australian a countryman of mine. I think he's a pious <laughs> disperser of nonsense. But that's not something we can discuss. And my question is in the same direction. It's my information, and I'm not an archaeologist, yeah. but from the people I've read, the Easter Island story, which is often sort of an illustration of man's misuse of the environment. From what I've heard, it wasn't deforestation, but the bringing of diseases by very early contact with white civilization that killed off the Easter Islanders, not the deforestation. I'm ashamed to say I know so little about Easter Island. Well, this I'm is glad the you wouldn't have used this, argu this argument B then. Big button? I'm, I'm glad you say so, because you shouldn't have used this argument, this pious environmentalism, which is being, we're being bombarded with. Is there another question in the middle here? Quite lots of questions, Andy. Thank you. Uh, climate change obviously is a global problem. Uh, and as your uh, world map migration showed, one of the ways in which uh, humans have adapted to local environmental issues in the past is to migrate. Mm. Uh, with the uh, fact that there are now all these political boundaries in place that weren't there previously, and the numbers of people that are on the face of the planet now are considerably greater yeah. than they were at the times of the artifacts that you were illustri illustrating your talk with, uh, do you think that, in fact, uh, this archaeological history has anything practical to teach us in the circumstances in which we are today? I, th I think it has practical examples. Well, let me... In terms of dealing with the, with the sheer scale of the issue, no, because as, as you very rightly say, we are talking about communities now which are so many factors greater in number than they ever were. I, I, I do feel that in terms of particular, I almost like the sense of responsibility of individuals and that sense that archaeology, as we get better and better tools uh, to analyse, is getting more fine-grained understanding of individual actions and individual uh, responses to change, both climate change and all sorts of change. So I like that sense that archaeology can perhaps really give us an insight into, into individual responses. That's probably not quite the answer you're looking for. I, no, we're never going to get enormous big picture uh, uh, understanding uh, of exactly what we should do in the future. But we, we do have a sense of, I'm a strong believer in the sense of kind of individual steps having, having a broader role to play. I'm not sure you, your face says I haven't answered that question, but I'm trying to think of a way of answering it very briefly. I, I, I think, too, we should make a distinction between uh, the long-term effects of slow natural climate change, such as we saw through the Ice Ages, 
uh, and indeed through uh, more recent historic times. And the effects of global warming for which we are responsible and for which we can um, take steps. Gentleman over here, I think um, we've probably got time for two more quick ones. Being very generous. Okay, uh, Bob Lowe uh, from the uh, UCL Energy Institute. Um, if I could just pick up on the last uh, couple of comments, uh, it seems to me that the big difference uh, between now and 11,000 years ago uh, is that 11,000 years ago it was possible for human populations to follow the reindeer, and I, I, I th that, that that I think is the meaning that I would attach to the swimming reindeer. Uh, I think in a full world, which is essentially what we have now, it's, it's not possible for this to take place. I think the other thing that we have to recognise now, the big difference between now and times gone by, uh, is the extent of the shared physical infrastructure that we have built around us to sustain life at the densities, which were simply inconceivable um, uh, thousands of years ago, or perhaps even hundreds of years ago. And I think that needs to be taken into account because any solution, I'm quite sure, will involve significant construction of communal infrastructure, the like of which we've never seen. Thank you very much. Mm. A good comment. And gentleman at the back there. Yes, thank you. My question is basically on the, on the problem of the challenge of climate in the 21st century. My dilemma is that we've had all this evidence, both archaeologically and historically, in terms of how we, since the Industrial Revolution, has burnt fossil fuels of gas, coal, and now oil over the last 100 years. And is it really such a, a crisis or, say, a, a shock or surprise that the, the, the world and the climate itself is responding to to the devastation of humanity against the earth itself. I don't think it's a surprise at all. I mean, if you, you go back into the history of this kind of thing, there have been people uh, pretty much um, since the kind of 50s and 60s saying we're heading towards this. I certainly can also think of some climatologists who would say that they have been pointing out this data for a very, very long time. Uh, it's a politically sensitive one that so long as we have been able to secure cheap supplies of things like oil and coal and gas and things like that in particular, it's a hard one because humans are quite naturally selfish to want to go away from cheap solutions to more expensive, more energy efficient solutions. My hope is that a bit, as was said earlier, sometimes being forced to change to other things will also speed us up and will mean we will start to think more seriously about, yes, it's going to cost us to move to more uh, energy efficient uh, and more green energy solutions, but we are going to do that. There is also, there is tremendous money to be made. I mean, we must never forget that uh, humans are so often driven by self-interest. Uh, and that self-interest can be harnessed to do good things for climate change. It need not necessarily be entirely negative. I, I hope that answers your question. I'm aware we're dead on one, and I'm going to get shouted at for the British Museum. Um, well, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm reluctant when there is such interest to, to draw a close. If people must leave, um, please um, feel free to do so. But we'll allow one more question, and then I must close. OK, thanks. Um, uh, given that the rate of climate change is now faster than it has been ever before, 
um, in sort of human history. Um, apart from a message of uh, sort of metaphorical and motivational message of hope and resilience and adapt adaptability, um, what would you say to those who said that archaeology is now sort of you know, less relevant than most other fields with regards to this issue? Um, I would disagree profoundly that it's less relevant. I think it's more and more and more relevant. Uh, one of the simple facts is that we continually realize we know less and less about the human past rather than more and more about the human past. Uh, Haysborough is a fine example of that, that climate change has uh, inadvertently uh, revealed an archaeological site which is absolutely influential to our understanding of, of the first uh, peopling of, of the British Isles. Uh, I work all over Britain and I'm continually amazed by the things we find. So on the one hand, it's immediately influential to local communities who do care. There's also the fact that uh, archaeological sites, as I've said, will be some of the sites which first get damaged by climate change and communities really, really care about their heritage uh, a lot more than perhaps people necessarily realise. The other thing to remember is that archaeology is one of a whole swathe of different sciences and archaeology never exists in a vacuum. This British Museum is an absolute example that archaeology on its own is merely one of about 100 different interrelated disciplines. So we feed into the climate scientists who feed into the ecologists who feed into and feed into and feed into and feed into. So we are one little part of, as it were, this scientific ecosystem which helps provide various different understanding of the world. I think with that, I must thank... Dr. Flatman, for a tour de force. Um, the relevance of archaeology to these questions, I think, is evident from a discussion which is beginning to emerge, which I think could probably go on all afternoon and range from uh, demographics to uh, the, cons uh, the, the, the potential causes of, of population change in other parts of the world. Um, it's been absolutely um, marvellous. I hope you'll come back. If you want to uh, see the objects shown in the talk uh, and indeed the others uh, of 100 objects, you can pick up a leaflet at the information desk and go around and all of the objects are uh, signed up in the, in the various galleries. I hope you have an enjoyable afternoon and that we'll see you for the next lectures in this series. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye. <laughs>